I heard it differently from other people, but I think when you get a head coaching job, you need to implement everything you want to do in the first year. Uh, it just needs to be a complete culture shock to the program. Uh, because I think when you make try to make small incremental changes, uh, kids start coming back the next year and say, well, coach, we didn't have to do it this way last year. Why are we making this change now? You know, we've been in three Final Fours, but uh, we've not been able to get over that hump and win a state title. But when we do, it's going to be because of all the guys before the group that actually wins it. Every, every group that has come through here has brought something to the table uh, that our program has gained from. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the High School Coaches Club. I'm your host, Max Price. As always, I appreciate you so much for tuning in and for being part of the club. If you haven't joined as a free member yet, which to be honest is really crazy to believe, I'm sure you're already a member. But go ahead and hit that link in the show notes. It takes about 90 seconds. And again, it's free. And if you want to leave a rating or review on the podcast, that would be pretty cool too. Thanks for supporting the High School Coaches Club. And thanks also to Netting Pros for sponsoring the episode. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. They specialize in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for baseball, softball, football, soccer, lacrosse, track and field, golf courses, and more. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, and dugout cubbies. Netting Professionals continues to provide quality products and services to many recreational, high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, courses, and stadiums throughout the United States. You can contact them today by calling 844-620-2707, emailing info at nettingpros.com, visiting their website, nettingpros.com, or by checking Netting Pros out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Huge thanks to Will and the gang at Netting Pros for powering up episode number 24 of the High School Coaches Club with head baseball coach Scott McGee of Willard High School in Willard, Missouri. In 14 years at the helm, McGee has led the Tigers to three Final Four appearances, six district titles, and get this, 10 consecutive district championship appearances. But it wasn't smooth sailing from day one, and he openly shares some of the early struggles the program endured. It's an episode packed with gold nuggets focused around a common theme. Better people, better teammate, better competitor. Let's get it rolling. It's the Ken Griffey Jr. episode, number 24, with Willard High School head baseball coach, Scott McGee. All right, I'm joined here with Scott McGee. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Max. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on. Um, obviously from Missouri, we kind of found each other through Twitter and that seems to be where, where most people end up finding me or I find them. Yeah. Twitter has been a, an awesome thing for, for coaching. Uh, not always, but for the most part, there's a lot of good information on there and good connections. Yeah, usually. Uh, but like there's, there's a dark side too, but we don't need to get into that too much. Um, I want I want to start here. So, cause I saw this on Twitter once from you a long time ago and uh, I loved it because it really lines up with what kind of my mentality is as well let's say I play baseball for you in your program uh, I'm at the plate and I strike out and then I sprint back to the dugout what are you telling what are you telling me uh, you have no confidence in yourself you're embarrassed uh, you know you need to walk back uh, we, we, we do that for a couple reasons we want to walk back so that we know the, the pitcher didn't get the best of us we just missed something and by the time you get back into the dugout you should be 100% committed to investing in your teammates' success on the field again. And if you have to walk a little bit slower to get over that at-bat, then walk a little bit slower. But, uh, you know, you don't see Mike Trout strike out and run back to the dugout. Uh, 
you know, he's processing what just happened and getting over the at bat. And, and so we do the same thing. I love it. The idea of confidence and whatnot, it's, it's a huge thing. And the, the second part you mentioned is something I haven't thought about too, but that makes a lot of sense is that that time also gives you a chance to process what just happened and reinvest. Cause a lot of times what happens as a kid, like it runs back to the dugout and then he's pissed off and he's still upset and it creates a really awkward situation for his teammates too. Yes, it does. It's, it's uh and then they get in there, they, they're pouting in the dugout and it, it just, it, kills your team chemistry and team morale and, and energy, you know, sports relies so much on energy. And so uh, in, in every way you're either taking energy or giving it. And that's a, a way that you can take energy. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm excited to have you on and I want to give you a chance to kind of take us back through how you got where you are. So can you take us back to like your high school playing days? Where'd you play high school? And then what was that transition like heading into college? Yeah, so I played at, at Ozark High School, which is a school in our, our conference. Uh, it's about 30 minutes from, from where I currently coach. Uh, Ozark was a, a very good sports school. I played three sports there. Um, you know, I was just good enough to start, and you were never excited for me to be in the lineup or on the field. Uh, played on some really good teams. Uh, learned, learned a ton. You know, got to play for uh, my high school football coach, Phil Montgomery, was, a, was an outstanding man and a leader. Uh, my high school baseball coach, who I later went on and worked for, was was an outstanding coach, probably the best, uh, you know, kind of the biggest coaching legend down in this area, baseball wise. So, I got to learn a lot from those guys and and just kind of, uh, you know, <clears throat> learned how to hold a spot and learned that I had to be more intelligent than other people. I was not a very hard worker, you know. I didn't realize that at the time, but looking back, I was not a very hard worker, and uh, just kind of skated by. Um, and, and learned a lot as I, as I went through. So I, I, I at the end of high school, you know, I, I, I considered doing some other things, you know, play small college football or something, but I was a really good student and, and just wanted to go on and become a college student and, and kind of jump right into coaching right after I graduated from playing, uh, right back there at Ozark. I, I started, uh, coaching in summer baseball programs and stuff like that to try to, try to start building this. Cause I've known I've wanted to do this for a very long time, you know, I, I grew up playing Stratomatic. Uh, it's a tabletop baseball game with my dad, beginning when I was like six or seven and keeping elaborate stat sheets and roster constructions. And, uh, you know, when I was little, uh, WGN had all the Cubs games in the afternoons. So I'd watch them in the afternoons and, and we would record them on the VCR tapes. And then uh, my dad would watch them again later that night. And of course, Cubs pretty much always lost. But uh, uh, those were some good times. It just got me super invested in baseball. Well, I was going to say that it's funny because when you mentioned that during your high school times, I, I think I was pretty similar where I thought I was a hard worker at the time. And then after leaving high school, moving on with my life and now looking back, especially as a coach, I'm like, actually, I, I really wasn't that hard of a worker at all. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's amazing. You hear people say this all the time, that they could go back and do things differently, you know, um, as far as work ethic and attention to detail. Uh, those kind of things would have mattered. And, and it wasn't that other people weren't telling me this stuff. I just kind of thought that, you know, you kind of feel like people are picking on you when they point these things out. And, uh, but they were, they were trying to help me out. And I just didn't, I was too hard headed at the time to, to listen to all of that. <laughs> I think a lot of us are. And that's one of the hard parts about coaching too, is because we, we want to, ex, you know, expect better out of our players than maybe we even got from ourselves. But then we end up doing kind of what you're talking about. Like we're, saying these things to kids and then maybe they start feeling like we're picking on them and we're trying to, we're just trying to like help them, but it creates this kind of awkward situation where they do feel maybe possibly picked on by us, even though we're like ultimately trying to prevent them from making some of the same mistakes that we made. 
yeah, I think what, what is, what it has helped me with is maybe the kid who is like me, who was like me, um, finding a different way to communicate with them, um, and trying to help them out because, you know, this game is about player development, um, and personal development and, uh, having, having that experience as someone who thought they were working hard when they really weren't. And then you're just being pointed out and you feel like you're being picked on. Uh, I've tried not to do that to players just because I see, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but it just wasn't effective. And trying to, to find a more effective way to communicate with players is, has kind of been a, a lifelong mission of mine since I got into coaching. That's such a huge part of coaching. So you, you finish college and you are already coaching during your time in college. You mentioned some summer ball opportunities. Um, now you're at Willard High School. Can you take us through the process of how you ended up where you are right now? Yeah, so I graduated from uh, Missouri State, which is here in Springfield, Missouri, uh, which we're all suburbs of Springfield. And, um, you know, Ozark offered me a, a position teaching some junior high English and uh, coach, being an assistant coach in football, assistant in girls basketball, and assistant in baseball. And, uh, you know, I kind of jumped at that opportunity. Uh, my senior year of college, I'd actually gotten the opportunity to be a pitching coach at Ozark. Uh, that team had a fourth-round draft pick, a kid going to Stanford as a pitcher, our number three pitcher was probably the most intelligent pitcher I've ever uh, coached. Uh, you know, it was a loaded staff, and I just had to jump in and, and try to help out. And, and uh, you know, our head coach at the time gave his assistants a lot of leeway. That's something I've tried to do as well. Probably not quite as well as he has, but I just kind of got thrown into the fire and said, here, do your best. And, uh, you know, I made a ton of mistakes, but I learned from them. Uh, I, I learned so much more from that first year as a pitching coach than I'd ever learned in all my years up, leading up to that. And I learned a lot from those kids that I was trying to help because uh, they helped me a ton. And so at the end of that year, I got offered a, a job. And so then I was an assistant at Ozark for the next three years, um, doing doing a variety of roles. Uh, during those those three years, uh, we were really good. Uh, you know, kind of the same thing. My first year as an assistant, I did not do a great job. Uh, my second year, I was pretty good. And by my third year, I felt like I was a, a really high-level assistant coach. Kind of applied for a job uh, here in Willard. They're in the same conference. Um, you know, when I applied for the job, there was a, a, a kind of a legend uh, of his own that uh, was leaving the position to go the college route. And I kind of just applied for interview experience. Didn't didn't expect to get the job. Uh, there was a guy on staff that applied. And uh, I think some people in town wanted him and some people didn't. And some people on the school board wanted him and some people didn't. And we just kind of got into the interviews and, and I kind of won the interview, I guess you could say. And so I kind of got a head coaching job at age 25 that, um, you know, I probably wasn't truly prepared for uh, because I don't think anyone actually ever is. Uh, but once once I did that, I, I said, OK, I'm going to do the absolute best I can to turn us into a, a state power. That's yeah, I was just thinking that's a young age to become a head coach. And then I thought back when you're talking about being a pitching coach at Ozark and having, you know, like you mentioned, an eventual fourth round draft pick and just kind of being thrown in the fire. And what you mentioned, I think, is spot on. I don't think anyone's ever really for being, you know, ever truly ready to be a head coach. But uh, sometimes you just end up in a position and you have to kind of learn on the fly. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, looking back, I guess I would give this advice. I've heard. I heard it differently from other people, but I think when you get a head coaching job, you need to implement everything you want to do in the first year. Uh, it just needs to be a complete culture shock to the program. Uh, because I think when you make, try to make small incremental changes, uh, kids start coming back the next year and say, well, coach, we didn't have to do it this way last year. Why are we making this change now? 
Um, so I just wanted to change everything right away. Uh, not that what they were doing was wrong. It was just different points of emphasis on the game and off-season participation and lifting and all that stuff was different. And so it just became a uh, – it was a tough first year. It was a really tough first year. Uh, but I grew a lot as a coach. And our program eventually grew from that experience. And uh, we brought in some freshmen that year that, uh, that be- developed a really strong work ethic uh, you know, I think that we spend so much time worried about our varsity team, but your younger kids are watching everything that goes on in your program, and they're really watching you even when you don't realize it as the head coach. And so if you're letting certain things slide by, uh, they're going to think they're going to get to do that same thing when they're older. And so uh, you really have to build that accountability right away. Uh, yeah, the idea of the younger groups is something that I've always struggled with. Here in Oregon, we all play our games at the same time. So varsity, JV, freshman, we're all playing our baseball game at the same time, usually at different locations. And so as like I've mentioned this before on here, but as like the varsity head baseball coach at South Salem High School, I've probably seen over you know five years or, or so our freshman baseball team play maybe twice our JV team play just by kind of looking over at the other side of the other field and just kind of catching glimpses of the game. And so just from an Oregon standpoint, like we don't get a whole lot of interaction with our younger levels. And so then the, the idea of practice and off season becomes really important. What's, what's it like in Missouri? Are you able to see your younger kids play or is it kind of like it is here? Yeah. So on conference nights, uh, our varsity plays at four thirty, and our JV plays right afterwards at the same location. So I get to see basically every JV game. The freshmen are at opposite locations. Uh, so, like, if we're at Ozark, then Ozark would be at us for the freshmen. Uh, the, we, I try to schedule a good number of freshman games uh, on nights our varsity and JV are not playing so I can watch them as much as possible. But And then we practice everybody all together every day. Uh, you know, it, it is a bear of a practice schedule. It is, it is really complicated making it. You know, it takes about an hour and a half each morning uh, for me to, to map all that out. But... Uh, it has been a, a huge help to our program and over the long term um, to get those guys invested, get them on the field as much as possible, and and really help get them acclimated to varsity baseball as quickly as possible. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the the big keys to long term success is finding a way to get your younger levels exposure to the varsity group because it's really hard for them sometimes if you if you don't have that mixture between the two or three groups. Like as a freshman, you might not have any idea what the varsity team is doing. You might not have any idea why, you know, a kid who's really good is really good. Like you just don't get to see the everyday little bits and pieces of it. And so building that practice in where you're working together, I think, is a super awesome idea. Yeah, I think when you can start to put your younger guys around your harder worker and older kids, that's when you can really start to develop a program. And, you know, one of the advantages we have, we're, we're in the largest classification here in Missouri, but we're a small town. We're, we're like a really small town. And so all of our kids have known each other forever. Uh, we have a youth program that goes down to, uh, to T-ball. Um, and so our kids, start, they grow up playing on town teams uh, that, that are part of our youth program. And so uh, you know, we can. I can tell you right now who our good fifth graders are, who who our good third graders are, and and so as those things move up, it really helps a considerable amount with my interactions with the kids and and with the kids' interactions with each other. Uh, you know, when we do youth camps and stuff, all of our kids know each other, and and uh, you know, we had a varsity scrimmage on Friday, and we had some of our youth kids and parents there uh, just showing up to the field to watch scrimmages, and that doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to every town, and that's a huge advantage that we have is that we are a very small community, and so all of our people know each other really well. Well, that's that's one of the best parts about smaller communities or maybe one high school towns and things like that is because there's 
there aren't, I don't want to say it's, this is a, a blanket statement, but there's not as many options necessarily as a kid growing up. So it, like, for example, here in Salem, if I'm a, you know, if I'm a, I don't know, a third grader, I've got probably like five different options uh, for where I want to go play baseball. And so it's just, just having a smaller town and a smaller community kind of lends itself really well to having a youth program that's really successful. And then obviously you're benefiting from it in the long run because eventually those kids get into high school and they've been exposed to Willard High School's way of baseball and to each other and, and to you for so long that they they kind of have expectations going in and they kind of understand how things work. Yes, and, and that has allowed us to probably do some things. People who watch us play say we have kind of a unique style. Uh, we do a lot of things that would be seen as weird, I guess you would say. Uh, but our kids are so used to them that they don't see them as weird, uh, you know, because starting in seventh grade, they basically play as part of our high school summer program. Uh, so the way we hold runners, the way we take leadoffs, the, our base running strategies, um, a whole bunch of stuff is the same for those kids starting in seventh grade. So by the time they're a senior, everything they've done, they've done it the exact same way for six years. And so it, it really helps uh, kind of develop a system uh, that seems complicated maybe to other people, but to our groups, it becomes just kind of old hat and, and something that they're used to doing. Well, and then when when they get to high school, you're spending so much less time during practice teaching those things because there's are systems that are already built in. And it, it allows you to spend practice doing doing more complicated or, or better or just spending time doing things that are going to happen more in games that you don't have to worry about. And then, you know, I go back to high school football. Um, we played a, a game when I was in high school against a team that ran the swinging gate. And uh, I remember we, we practiced against that formation probably 45 minutes that week. We get into the game, they ran it one time. And uh, that's about what they ran at every game was one time. But, you know, the other team is spending 45 minutes preparing for it. And I just thought, man, if I'm ever a head coach, I'm going to come up with some things that are different than everyone else is doing. So now every team is wasting practice time preparing for us. And we are doing something that is unique to us, so we know how to do it. And there's only really two or three different ways you can strategize against us. And so, therefore, we're gonna we're gonna you know gain on you in practice every day because we're not spending any time preparing for you, and you're having to spend a lot of time preparing for us. And that's, so, I think that's, that's so awesome. Yeah, we had. I, I was just thinking we had a team in our league a few years ago who's really famous for doing some like double squeeze type bunt situations and doing some things like that. And you're, you're totally right. The, you know, when we were getting ready to play them, that was taking up a huge amount of our practice time instead of us spending practice time on stuff that might make us better at baseball. We were having to use it to prepare for this team that we were going to play against. Yeah. And then that stuff all just kind of adds up over the course of a year. And then over the course of six years, uh, you know, and it just kind of allows us to make that daily progress. It's what I love about baseball so much. And I like all sports, but, Baseball is so much about just getting a little bit better every single day. Uh, you can really make huge strides as a baseball player. I think more so maybe than in, in basketball and football, which would be the other two sports I'm more familiar with. Uh, that's why I like baseball the best. Well, you mentioned, Scott, that you guys do some weird things. So I got to know at least one thing that you do that other coaches might look at and think that's kind of different or kind of weird. So when a runner, base runner is on second base, our second baseman starts out holding the runner like on the bag, like they're a first baseman until the pitcher comes set and then they sprint off the bag. So if the guy has a, a small lead, uh, we get off the bag quick and we pitch. And if the guy gets a big lead, we can just turn and pick just like he's a, a base runner off first base. And then we have some picks on a, on a timing system uh, based off of the second baseman runs away and then comes right back. 
Um, so that's that's one of the things that is different. And, and people just we do, we basically never allow never give up a, a stolen third base anymore. Um, you know the uh, the the Tallarico and the the launch leads or momentum leads, whatever you want to call those. We do all of those. Uh, you know we have three first and third plays that uh, that that are. I wouldn't say they're indefensible, but but they're really hard to defend. Uh, that we can basically, if we're trying to get a guy to second, we're trying to get a guy home, or we're trying to figure out what your coverages are, uh, we run those three things, and and uh, we just get really good at those things, and and uh, simplify the game for ourselves a little bit, uh, while other teams are worried about all the stuff we do. No, I love it. And then if, like you mentioned, you've got them coming to play like the high school summer deals in like seventh grade. So like you said, by the time they're getting to actual high school, like that stuff is implemented. And then the practice time you spend on is so much smaller. Um, yes. Can you give us the rundown on Willard High School? So uh, you mentioned a little bit about where it is, but what's it like um, for anybody who has like zero knowledge of Willard High School or uh, or its location there in Missouri? So we're about 10 miles northwest of Springfield, Missouri. Um, it's a rural town. Uh, there's there's some farms. There's quite a bit of farming out here. Um, you know, it's it's the north side of Springfield and Willard, and the north side of Springfield is the poorer side. Uh, not as many big jobs out here or anything like that. Um, so the, there's not a ton of money, which uh, baseball is a money sport. Um, so that, that can be a troubling at times, but it's also been a huge advantage because our kids rely on us for baseball. You know, we don't have a lot of kids that take private lessons. We don't have kids that do that kind of stuff. Like if they're going to be good at baseball, we have to provide that for them. And so, uh, you know, we kind of take it as a mission to, to do that. Our town just has, I think, 3,900 people in it. But because we pull from North Springfield and the surrounding areas, our high school has about uh, 1175. That actually puts us in the largest class in Missouri. So Missouri has a, a kind of a weird playoff system. We have 97 schools per class, and all of our stuff is single elimination. So uh, you know we're in this largest class with 90. You know I think we're about the 85th biggest school. So in that classification, so uh, it, it gets it gets pretty tough. Um, you know when, when I got here, I looked at a lot of those things as negatives, but uh, you know there's there's been some positives that I've really found with this, and, and that is that the kids are reliant on us for baseball. We are the ones that provide things for them. Um, our community is very invested in baseball. You know, I have so many kids that will come back today for our scrimmages. We're scrimmaging today, and we'll have uh, – I got a text last night from a couple college kids that want to come back and just hang out with us uh, because, you know, baseball is a huge part of our community, and and so we're, we're really uh, pleased with, with the way things have worked out here. Oh, I, I really like that too, and I've, 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 we're starting to reach the point now where a lot of college kids want to come back and hang out. And it's been really cool to see because I'm. This is year five for me, but obviously last year was kind of a lost year, so it's kind of really only year four. And uh, just as someone who's somewhat new into head coaching, you know, really to be honest with you, since only 2017, like that part is is awesome. Like when high school college kids are like, "Hey, I want to come hang out at practice," and you're like, "What, really? Like you? This means that much to you that you just want to come sit and on a, hang out on a bucket and watch us practice? Like what?" Yeah, and you know, I used to not be able to, you, you know. I was so into practice. I'm such a practice guy that when somebody would come back, I would kind of just let them stand there and watch practice and I wouldn't hardly interact with them. And, and now when I have guys come back, I always try to carve out time to talk to them. And for those guys, if they want to talk to the team, I always let them talk to the team. Uh, you know, those are the guys I, I, I tell people, we haven't, we haven't had an opportunity to win a state title here yet. You know, we've been in three final fours, but uh, we've not been able to get over that hump and win a state title. But when we do, it's going to be because of all the guys before the group that actually wins it. 
Um, you know, every every group that has come through here has brought something to the table uh, that our program has gained from. And so our program has been able to improve every single year uh, in some fashion. It, it's not always resulted in wins on the field for that specific year, uh, but they've gained on the field for us. Um, and so building a program, you want those older guys to feel like uh, even when they're 26 years old, if we won a state title, that they had a part in it because they did. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have guys that uh, that uh, will we'll be able to, to feel very happy about winning a state title at this school because of what they contributed to the program. Well, and they're getting a lot out of it. From what from what I could gather, uh, I counted 14 former Willard High School Tigers that I think are currently playing college baseball. Does that sound right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. That, that's I mean, it's. It's insane to think about that. I mean, that is a tremendously large number of kids that have decided that, you know, baseball experiences for them in high school were not only positive and fun enough because you have to really love it if you're going to play in college. But then obviously, like you mentioned, that they actually got good at baseball and they're heading off into college to play. And so you have 14 former players playing college baseball. How does that feel as the head coach at Willard High School? Uh, Really, really proud. Um, Probably more important uh, not just the kids who play in college, but the kids who enjoyed their high school baseball experience enough that caused them to want to even just go to college and be better, you know, students. Uh, you know, but but obviously, getting to sit down and, and do uh, you know pull up live streams of games or watch them on ESPN Plus if they're if they're, any of their games are on there or, or just you know follow the live stats um, is is so fun and to talk to those guys and find out what they're doing at practice. You know, those things help us too as high school coaches. You know, ask your college players, say, what are you guys doing at practice? How are you guys holding guys on, on, on runners on first base, you know, when that guy's a really fast runner? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things can really uh, help you grow as a coach as well by getting to talk to those guys. So, um, you know, you want those guys to be back around you as much as possible. Yeah, one of our uh, former players from my previous high school, when I, where I was an assistant, he's a catcher at Oregon State. And he's, I've talked to him a little bit about a few things and they, they have this binder that all the catchers get and they keep it over the course of their whole college career and they add pages to it and get more information. And I just like every day that I talk to him, I try to pry a little bit more information out of him. I so, like, what is in that binder? I've got, I've got to see this binder. Yes. Yeah. It's, and then what you'll find is, is that it's a lot of the stuff that you're already doing. They, yeah. Those guys get, those guys get a lot more time than we get. Uh, you know, and school really kind of gets in the way for us. Uh, you know, they're only having class for three or four hours a day is a lot different. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's good to also kind of even just get some affirmation. You know, you, you know, college guys will come back and I'll ask them what they're doing. They're saying, honestly, coach, what we were doing in high school was better. You know, the, the way we were running this drill, the way we were running this cutoff, that, that it made more sense than the way we're doing it now. Uh, or, hey, they're doing it the exact same way we were doing it in high school, you know. One of the things I've always struggled with is, you know, what do we do offensively with two strikes? How do you find that balance of putting the ball in play uh, with, uh, you know, not wanting to take away a power hitter swing? And, you know, I've, I've bounced back and forth with all sorts of ideas. So I'm asking everybody I can find, you know, what are you guys doing with two strikes? And, uh, you know, trying to get different ideas so we have a system that we know we want to keep, keep doing. Because, you know, we try to add or subtract from our program every single year within our system. Uh, to to be as good as possible. And the only way you can do that is to get ideas from everyone else. Well, the subtracting part, I think, is really good for coaches to hear, too, because I think, uh, especially in baseball, and I'm not entirely sure about other sports because I'm much more locked into the coaching side of baseball, but um, 
as a coach, there's clinics and conferences and, and chats and there's just so many places where you can get so much information and you want to, you find all this great stuff and you want to add it to your program. And I think sometimes we forget that you've got to, first, you got to have stuff that's good for your players. That's going to work for you and and your program. But then two, you, you've got to subtract some things sometimes too. And you've got to be honest with yourself when stuff is not working or when there's something better that it's okay to take something out, delete it, maybe put it in a binder. And then maybe a few years later, it actually comes back and you realize that was the right thing to do. Correct. And then we like to experiment with our summer baseball program because we, we have mostly the same kids. Uh, so if we're wanting to try something new, we're going to experiment with it in the summer or it doesn't matter if it fails or if the kids can't grasp it or whatever. Uh, but I do think you have to subtract things. You know, we, we used to, when I was first got here, we spent way too much time on bunt defense. I bet we haven't practiced bunt defense as a, in a team setting in five years. Uh, you know, now our, our catchers, as part of their individual work, will do bunt defense. Our pitchers do their PFP. Uh, but we don't do team month defense anymore. You know, that was, you know, sometimes 30, 40 minutes a week that we were just kind of felt like we were wasting. Uh, you know, we, we play our third baseman closer when we, they think they're going to bunt. That's that's kind of our bunt defense. Uh, you know, I think there's always different things that you can uh, add in. But if you're going to add something in, you need to be subtracting things because there's only so many minutes in a practice. There's only so much time in a day. And you know, we practice five and a half hours a day here early in the season. Uh, but you still can't fit everything in if you just keep adding, adding, adding. Yeah, the butt defense. I don't want this to just be a baseball podcast, but we're baseball coaches, so it's going to happen naturally anyway. Sorry. But the butt defense part is is spot on. We were doing the same thing early on my first year. We're spending all this time on butt defense, and it, it doesn't take long to realize, well, first, they're athletes. They've been playing baseball a long time. Do we really need signs and signals and all this stuff? I mean, we, like you said, if, if we think they might bunt, let's bring our third baseman in a few steps and there you go. Like we'll be athletes and make plays happen. Catchers can practice, like you said, on individual parts of it. Pitchers can do PFPs and everything. And when you put them in a team setting, they'll be fine when a game rolls along. But yeah, similarly, we spent way too much time on butt defenses in our early, early year, early years. Yeah, I think, you know, in basketball, you've got people that work on sideline inbounds forever. And you know, I think if whatever sport you're coaching, you just need to kind of sit down and ask yourself, how much does this actually impact winning the game? And does this drill impact everybody on the team? You know, in bunt defense, what are your outfielders doing? What are your, around. <laughs> your shortstops and second basemen are literally running to cover a different bag. Like they don't need to do that stuff. So even if you are going to practice it, you only need five or six guys to practice that. And let the other guys do something else. I just brought back horrible memories of, of uh, in college my freshman year. I got ended up being moved to second base. And you just brought back a flood of memories of literally for, you know, a practice, we, I, being at second base and making sure, hey, don't cheat, play your normal spot. And basically my, you know, for half an hour, my practice was a guy would go to bunt and I'd sprint to first base and then jog back and redo it over and over again. I'm like, okay, I've got it. I think I get, <laughs> I understand. I'm good. I don't have to do this anymore. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so anyway, uh, rough start the first couple of years. You mentioned that. Um, you mentioned you implemented every it's, it's going to be Coach McGee's program and you're going to implement it. And um, and obviously there's struggles that happen with that early on. Since then, you've had a ton of success um, playing in like district championship games basically every year. You mentioned you've been to the Final Four a handful of times. So we've we've found the success. We found the sweet spot um, off air. You kind of mentioned it happened probably around 10 years ago or so, 2011. What is it that happened that helps helped Willard turn the corner? Uh, it, it takes time to get buy-in um, and to get buy-in from the right people. 
I, you know, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but whenever I got hired, uh, there was a faction of people that wanted a different candidate. And then that candidate stayed in town and, and kind of actively worked against me at times. So that was that was a tough situation. Uh, you know, my first year we were we had lost everybody basically from the year before. I was only returning two players and one of them was hurt. Um, so we struggled through the first year. Uh, we had to play some freshmen who were not close to ready, but they were workers. And then by 2011, those freshmen were seniors. Uh, you know, I had a, a player who was a sophomore uh, on that first year's team who really developed a work ethic in the weight room. You know, we used to have uh, off-season weights, and I'm not kidding you, my first year we would get six kids to show up. Uh, you know, and now we have 40. Uh, like they, they will like text me, sorry, coach, I can't be there today. I have to stay after for tutoring for 30 minutes. I'll get in there as soon as I can. And it used to be like I'd schedule off season. They just nobody would show up. Um, so it takes a while to get that culture changed. Uh, you know, it's it's not an overnight thing. And so it took it really took four years. Uh, by our fourth year, we were finally, uh, I guess you just part of it was talent, uh, but work ethic and, and playing for one another. You know, there was a lot of. Uh, focus on seniority uh, in some of our other sports here as well. Uh, and I never cared about that kind of stuff. The best players played, the hardest workers, the kids who were bought in for their teammates. I think when you're really into seniority, you start to see more bullying type stuff. And we just haven't had any of that. And so when you have, uh, we get to 2011, uh, we, we finally kind of took off. But I think more than that, I think as a coach, I've, I've literally improved every single year I've coached. Um, I've, I've made that a mission since I got into this, that I was never just going to be the same coach every single year. Um, when I first got into this gig, I was, I was a pitching guy. Uh, the only thing I really knew much about was pitching. Um, I got pretty good at coaching pitchers, uh, and I didn't know hardly anything about hitting, so I kind of stayed out of that lane. And then as I've gotten older now, I, I mean, I feel like I know as much about hitting as I do pitching, but it's uh, you have to improve every single year as a coach if you want your your program to improve. And so I try to focus on areas in the offseason every year, and, and whether that's going to clinics, I buy a ton of DVDs. Uh, you know, I think better than going to the clinics is buying the DVDs and, and rewatching those over and over again from those clinics. You can really pick up some stuff, and and there's so many resources out there now that as a coach, there's no excuse to not improve. And so I've really made a, a, an effort to improve every single year as a coach. You, you went to so many different places that I think it's, it, I want to dive into all of them. I'm, I'm not sure we'll get to all of them, but they're all super important. I want to start, it was kind of one of the first things you said, and I think it's important because we'll probably have a lot of coaches who end up listening to this who um, maybe are assistant coaches right now or maybe head coaches who end up making a move to a different high school. And something you mentioned is, is usually the truth, and it's that when you are – taking over a new, not, sorry, not a new program, but when you're taking over a program, a lot of times when a coach leaves a program, um, they're not necessarily leaving it with an amazingly talented senior class coming in that year. Um, a lot of times the, the, there's a really good group of seniors, the team usually has a pretty good run, and then the coach is, is kind of moving on from there. And so a lot of times as head coaches, we take over programs and the talent pool in terms of maybe the juniors, seniors, even sophomores in the group might not be really, really high. And so like you mentioned, we end up having to make some really tough decisions. And sometimes that means we bring freshmen in who we know are going to struggle. And it might be a couple years till they're able to really get going. And you kind of know going in, this is, this is, this is not necessarily going to be pretty. Yeah. And then you, you got to make sure you don't kill those kids' confidence. Yeah, you know, that's if, a tough. That's a tough balance. If you're if you're a good freshman, 
uh, you've you've succeeded at every level of your sports. Um, and now all of a sudden, if you're playing varsity, you're not going to succeed. You know, uh, we graduated a kid this past year that started for us as a freshman. He's our only guy who's been an everyday starter as a freshman. Uh, his freshman year, he hit 240 with no home runs, and the season ended, and he signed with an SEC or he committed to an SEC school. Um, you know, it's just it's not it, you, freshman freshman playing varsity does not work if you're going to be successful. Uh, but you have to play the guys that you feel like are going to allow you to build a program. You know, I think a lot of times we look for guys who will will help us, help us, help us. Sometimes you have to figure out what kid will I never trust in a district championship game. If I'm not going to trust that kid in a district championship game, then they, you don't need to be wasting reps on them. You know, if you if you know that that kid is not completely sold out to helping the team win, then you're not going to be able to win with that kid in the lineup. And, you know, I think too many times we kind of give those kids a few too many chances. Uh, you know, kids will, kids are kind of showing you who their true colors are every day. And if they're showing you that they're not sold out for the team and they don't want to be good and they're excuse makers, we don't need to be spending reps on them. Uh, we need to get guys who are bought into uh, being the best possible player they can be and making our program the best it can be. And, and one of the ways that's done, especially in high school sports, where you can make huge gains is in the weight room, which you also mentioned. And so you you said you went from early on, like six guys showing up, which at that point, um, I, I remember my first year, we had a couple hitting days where only like five or six kids showed up. And it was really, as a coach, it's really disheartening. It's hard not to take it personal. It's hard not to feel like, is this, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is there somewhere I'm missing? Um, obviously, at this point, you can look back and reflect and say, well, you know, the trajectory was was right on. You're up to, you know, 40, 40 people showing up to lift weights. Uh, that's a that's a huge testament. So how did that change come about? Was it just time or was there something else? Some of it was time. Some of it was uh, it used to be when I'd have six kids show up, I would be so angry that I didn't really yeah. give those six kids my best effort. Uh, and I just decided, man, I'm going to make for those six kids who show up, I'm going to make this the best experience I can make it for them. And so we're going to play whatever music they like in the weight room and we're going to have fun and we're going to get our main lifts in. But then if they want to go over there and do bicep curls for an hour, just so they get their main lift, like I want them to get to want to be in here and I want them to develop some, some work ethic. And Hey, I bought them donuts sometimes on Fridays and stuff, just anything to kind of get kids to start to want to be there. And, um, before long, it just kind of became what everyone in the program did. And we, we do a lot in the off season. We do a lot in the summer. We, 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 spend a lot of time on baseball. Um, you know, Missouri regulations are that you can kind of lift as much as you want and you can have open facilities and stuff. So uh, we do quite a bit. Uh, none of it's mandatory, but before long, kids just want to be there. Uh, if you can make it in a welcoming environment. I, I think that's something that I learned by my second year um, to give the kids who do show up your best effort and the other kids will start to want to come as well. I think that's so important because just reflecting back again, when I, I can remember it really clearly when I had a hitting session and there was only, I think, five guys there and you're you're spot on like the you, you feel angry, you feel slighted because you're like, man, I put all this together. I'm here for you. Like we're not getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. Like I've given up time that I could be doing other things. And I, I want I invest in this program. I want us to be great. And only, you know, five or six of you show up and it's hard to like you mentioned, man, it's it's a hard turner uh, corner to turn. But once you do it, like your kids are going to be so much better off for it. Um, you also mentioned seniority, which which is a really that's a big topic. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of work on that. But um, I know for a lot of parents, there's this idea that, you know, you're as you're a kid, you work up and by your senior year, you've put in your time, you've invested it and you should be playing. You should be starting. 
And the reality as coaches is that it's our job to put together the team that is going to most put us in a chance to be successful. And that oftentimes means that a senior is not going to be starting and he might not even play hardly at all. Yeah, it is. I, I was talking to an area coach once and he made a good point. He said, parents only look at their kid's grade and the grades above them. They never look at the grades behind their own kids. Uh, so they never, they never pay any attention to what player might be behind them that is already better than their kid. Uh, so they sit here and say, well, I'm, my kid's a sophomore. He's a first baseman. The junior first baseman is going to graduate in two years, and my kid will be a senior and he'll start. And sadly, a lot of times that sophomore first baseman thinks of it that same way. And so they don't really work that hard their sophomore or junior year because they're not going to start right then anyway. Um, and so we, we've really tried to make a point of emphasis to – uh, point out and and we mix our teams a lot uh, in the summer and and in practices with scrimmages and uh, try to show kids where they stand in the program and uh, now we don't we don't want to run kids off I mean I had 15 seniors last year and a few of those seniors would have maybe pinch ran twice for the season and we loved having them around uh, they were they were great kids the kids loved being around them and they knew where they stood in the pecking order and they just wanted to be around baseball and enjoy their time uh, but it can be tough for kids and especially their parents uh, to see that, hey, my son's just not good enough. And, and hey, everything's in, in context. Uh, you know, if you tra transfer to some class one school and your, your kid would be a great player. And we have kids who start for us that if they went to, you know, Barb in, in Louisiana, they wouldn't get on the field. Uh, you know, it's just it's just the way that, that it is. And so you just have to do the best you can with your program and, and stick to your convictions. Uh, you, you know what's right for your program in your heart and you need to stick to that. Well, yeah, I mean, we're going to be the ones that are there far beyond the four years that the kids are there, too. So you have to be able to live with yourself and the decisions that you make. One of the things you mentioned is uh, having kids on your team who aren't going to play like at all. And they're still loving the experience and having fun with it. So how do you keep players engaged when they're on the bench during actual games? How do you keep them invested in it when they know that I'm not going to play today? Because that can go Our south. Yes, our pre-games are pretty wild. Uh, you know, we we have our we take our I.O. just like everyone does. We throw our bullpen. And our kids get down the left field line, and, and they, um, you know, usually they do some sort of a prayer. Uh, and then what happens is they do like a, a dance circle, and, like, they'll just call people out who have to jump into the circle and dance, and it's almost always those kids who aren't playing much, and they do some sort of weird dances, and everyone goes nuts. Uh, when, the, when the game gets going, we don't – we don't assign pointless jobs in the dugout. We do have a few jobs that we view as pretty important as far as your tracking pitcher looks or whatever. Um, and, and we try to make those guys feel like they're super invested in that. The ones who are, who are doing important jobs for the other guys, we ask for them to provide energy all the time. Uh, you know, the game day experience should be fun for everyone. You know, uh, everything should be good for the kids on game day. So uh, we want to make sure that they feel valued uh, and, and feel like they're having fun. The other thing is, is we don't have as high of expectations for them in, in practice, to be honest. Uh, you know, Paul Evans, uh, his Missouri State's pitching coach, he was the national pitching coach of the year two years ago, uh, three years ago. And, and he was saying, you know, that guy who's the 12th pitcher on your staff and isn't putting out great effort. Yeah, you can yell at him and berate him and scream at him, but he's 12th in the rotation. He knows he's 12th in the rotation. He's trying to hang on. And you bullying him as a coach is not going to do any good for anybody. Uh, find a way to bring that kid along and get him to enjoy himself. And sometimes those guys develop. Uh, you know, we've got a senior right now who we didn't probably think was going to play very much. Um, and through this winter and, and early spring, uh, he's a kid who's went from not a worker, not a worker, not a worker to a kid who wants to be there and, 
is totally invested. We think he's going to have a pretty big role for us now. And, uh, you know, you can't give up on kids, uh, but, but that's kind of what we've been successful with. Well, I'm hearing a lot of things that like dive into the idea of culture. <laughs> the the dance circle is, is certainly one that would play into it. And would, you know, an outside coach would look at that and go, that's kind of weird, but you'd probably really quickly understand the culture of it and how obviously it's bringing a team together and the team is being successful. So it must work to some level. Do you guys have like any mantras or sayings or, or program pillars or any standards that you um, refer to a lot or that are kind of part of your team's culture? Yeah, I mean, we say every day we're trying to be better people, better teammates, and better competitors. Uh, everything you do, uh, be a better person. Uh, be a better teammate. If you if you invest in your teammates and your teammates invest in you, everyone's going to grow. Um, and be a better competitor, no matter what it is. You know, if you've got an eighty-eight percent in class, get it up to a ninety. Uh, you know, if you uh, if you're getting if you're benching, you know, two twenty-five, set a goal that by a month from now you're going to get two thirty-five. Uh, you know, and then and then be a better person. You know, it, it's it doesn't cost you anything but time to stay extra to stay after to clean up the dugout, uh, to to just be as good of a person as you can be, and all of those things make you better players and and uh, help you out. So that's really the only thing we focus on. Uh, it's pretty simple. When somebody does something that we don't really care for as a coaching staff, we just say, Hey, are you being a good person right now? Are you being a good teammate right now? Are you being a good competitor right now? And I, it usually kind of clears a lot of those things up. So we try to keep it pretty simple with just those three things. Um, and we think that carries over to a lot more than just baseball. Yeah, I love it. I've, I'm always looking for ways to like simplify a team's, you know, I don't know, culture into a small amount of words that you can refer to with players, because I think that's one of the big the, the difficult spots is I can make a bunch of you know, standards and, and pillars. And these are going to be our, you know, 10 things that we're really going to be great at, but to be able to quickly communicate like it with players, that's really tough to do. Yeah. You sound like a school administrator. Like they, they love all those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <we laughs> guess, yeah. You know, it's, it is tough. I think you have, I think culture sometimes gets defined into these like, uh, you know, color by numbers books or whatever, but culture is something that you build every single day. Uh, you know, and it's built by everyone involved in your program. Uh, if your if your assistant coaches are not invested in your culture, the culture is going to decline in your program. Uh, if your 38th man on your roster is not invested in your culture, your culture is going to decline. So you have to get that kid on board, or they don't need to be around anymore. Um, and that does, has nothing to do with their talent level. It's you know, for us, is are they being a good person and a good teammate and a good competitor? And if they are. Um, then we're going to be very happy to have them in our program. Have you ever had a situation where one of your more talented players is not maybe maintaining those three standards and you've had to make a difficult decision about that? Yeah, you go back to that 2011 season, actually, my, our first like good season. Uh, we had a kid that was first team all-conference as a sophomore. Uh, as, a, as a junior, had gotten into some, you know, off-the-field activities that, that would not be approved of. Um, had an okay season by the end, kept getting in some other trouble. And by the end of the year, we had to get a, kick him off the team. Um, he met with me that fall and wanted to come back. And I said, well, I'd give him a chance to come back, but he wasn't going to be our starting catcher anymore. The catcher was a leadership position and he'd have to move to left field. And he said he didn't think he could do that. And so I said, well, then you just need to move on. Um, and so like, Hey, he was, he was probably our most talented offensive player. Um, and we just, we just went ahead and bit the bullet and got rid of him. 
And uh, it was our the best season we had had in a very long time. And and I don't know that we would have had that kind of a season with him around at that point. Uh, funny funny thing is, is that kid still comes around now and, and talks to me and, and we have a good relationship now. Uh, but, you know, I think sometimes we have to, we have to see what is, what is important and, and those things end up working out. Well, it's funny you mentioned that last part too, that he still comes and hangs out a little bit too, because sometimes we, we have to make these really difficult decisions and we wonder to ourselves, you know, is this, is this kid going to be okay? Like, is he going to make it? But a lot of times that tough decision and that kid getting maybe, you know, a decision to not be on the team anymore ends up being like exactly what he needed right there in that moment in his life to maybe become something a little bit different, a little bit better. Yeah. I think we have to remember what, uh, what the kids' priorities are and what our priorities are. And those things kind of have to line up. You know, I, my, I have a son now who just turned 14. And once, once I had a kid and I was becoming a head coach at the same time and looking at the way I treat kids um, and thinking of each one of them as someone I would want living in my house has really kind of changed my approach to coaching. Uh, you know, in the middle of the 2016 season, I just decided I was going to be super positive. I kind of faked it for a while. Uh, but I, I'm like the biggest cheerleader in a game now. And, uh, you know, because kids need confidence and kids need to feel like they're uh, going to succeed. And if they if they swing and miss at a, at a breaking ball in the dirt uh, with good intent and a good hard swing, I'm going to praise them for it uh, because I would want someone to treat my kid that way uh, because they're up there trying their best. And uh, I think that that has been something that is, has really changed for me. And I think – uh, being a parent has really opened my eyes to a lot of those things. Yeah, it's like an intentions versus results oriented kind yes. of approach to coaching where, um, yeah, you want to praise the intention and then, you know, sometimes that doesn't go well and you, you still need to cheer them. And sometimes it's them walking back to the dugout, figuring out what happened and, and that it's going to be okay and that you can be confident. What else do you do to build confidence in players? Because you've mentioned a few things already. Yeah, so we, we have uh, weightlifting goals that we track. Um, and based off of their weight, what they do in bench, squat, deadlift, uh, and run their 60s in. And then once they get to certain levels, we call them a varsity athlete. So that, that encourages them to, to lift, obviously. Um, and it makes them feel like they belong. I just got that out of the driveline uh, book of, uh, I think it was one of his pitching books. Uh, you know, so I, we, do, we do stuff like that. Uh, honestly, we never do anything to embarrass a kid uh, during a game. Uh, you know, you can call out a kid in practice when it's just your team, but when you're calling out a kid in front of his girlfriend and his parents and his grandma, uh, man, that, that just devastates a kid. And so everything possible that we can do to, uh, to not call him out. And then we praise all of their successes. You know, uh, I praise every little success I can find in a game. If, if you pop up to short right field and you're busting it out of the box and get all the way to second base, I'm going to praise your effort for running so hard. Um, and I think all of those things build onto itself uh, because eventually that kid will start to feel like they belong. We have a lot of kids who don't feel like they belong. Um, you know, no matter what we think, playing a sport is really freaking tough. It's the toughest thing we do in high school nowadays. Uh, you know, and so it's it's really tough. And so we have to continue to instill confidence and uh, and and just be thinking about that with every decision and word that we we have. Well, I think baseball is one of the more difficult ones, too, not so much because of the game of failure that everybody likes to talk about, but because when you do have a failure, so to speak, it's it's really isolated where there's everyone's going to see it. 
and we're all going to have a moment to watch you after that failure because there's nothing else happening in the play. The, the play's done. We're watching you go back to the dugout. You're you know, trying to keep it together, trying to stay positive. And so there's this part in baseball where I think confidence might play a bigger role than other sports just because of the fact that it can fall apart so quickly if you start thinking about what all these people watching are thinking. Because um, like you mentioned, if you have a coach who's going to yell something out at you or try to embarrass you, maybe not try to embarrass you, that's the wrong word to use, but who does embarrass you, um, it, it, it just kills confidence. And I've noticed something I've had to do with some of our players is, is to not do that to each other because, um, you know, a kid makes an error and, you know, his, his teammate on the field yells out to him, hey, you know, you should have done this or that. And well, my reaction to that as a player is like, I know I was supposed to do that. Like, you don't need to tell me that. So then I start getting pissed off and angry and it just creates this entire like culture that's really negative. And so like trying to teach that to kids I have found has been a little bit more of a difficult thing than I thought it would be in the first place. Yeah, that's where we try to focus on them being a good teammate to each other. Uh, you know, we, we tell them you can criticize each other for your efforts. If you feel like a kid is not going as hard as they can, you need to say something to them. Uh, but if they make a mistake on the field, they don't need to hear about it from you. Everyone saw them make a mistake. Uh, we don't we don't need to have that. The other thing that's so unique to baseball, you know, because I've coached some other sports in basketball. Sometimes you want to take away a kid's confidence a little bit because you don't want him shooting 30 footers. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, and at the end of the game, you're going to be able to run the plays for your best player uh, in baseball. It's not that way. You may be at the end of the game and you've got seven, eight, nine coming to the plate. And so you you need those guys to feel like they're going to succeed. Uh, you know, and so that's that's a really important part uh, of baseball is just that total team mindset. And so uh, I think that is is difficult and it does require some maturity from your players, as you alluded to. Absolutely, for sure. I wanted to get into um, something that I found just by chance when I was clicking around a little bit. And it's it might be the best individual high school baseball team website that I think I've ever come across. And uh, your your program's website is unbelievable. And you've, you've just, I mean, just the website is set up so beautifully. But then within the website, there's so much awesome stuff, including you have a, a, an all-time records page that keeps track of, I'm, I'm telling you, like everything that's ever happened on a baseball field, basically. Like you've got the records for all of it. And I just want to take a second and commend you guys. Like your website is unbelievable. I'll link it in the show notes so people can see it for themselves, too. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, the guy before I got here, his, the head coach before I got here, his name was John Hartley. He had been here for 21 years, uh, did a great job. Uh, he's in the high school coaches hall of fame here in Missouri. Um, and he went the college route there at the end of his career and he kept very detailed records. So that, that helped a ton. Uh, whenever I took over, my dad does all of our stats. And so my dad has just kind of kept all of that up. And so we have all of the stats for, for basically the last 43 years now of our program. And then I have an assistant who's also our freshman coach named Jacob Scott that kind of runs runs the website, I guess you would say. You know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, finding assistant coaches that are different than you, uh, I'm, I'm not a good at that kind of stuff. I also don't hunt or fish. and We're in a hunting and fishing town. So I need to have some assistant coaches that do that kind of stuff. Uh, I need to have an assistant coach who's good at technology. Uh, you know, those kinds of things need to to happen. Uh, because we have to find ways to build relationships with players. But Jacob Scott does our website for us, and he keeps it up to date and, and does have a lot of good information on there. And, and thanks for, for noticing that. Uh, it's, it's awesome. So let's get into the coaches part. How have you 
gone about finding coaches because uh, just getting good assistant coaches is really hard to do. And you're in a small community, so it's not like you've got the pick of like the entire nation, you know, sitting there in front of you. So how do you go about finding guys and gals who can who can help your players? It, it is it is very difficult. Uh, you know, when I first got here, we had no assistant coaches at all. Uh, so I I had a, a math teacher who uh, I had known a little bit in college, and he started helping me out, and he turned into being one of the best assistants that you could ever imagine. Uh, but I was just kind of flying blind and, and he was a guy who was loyal and hardworking and he wanted to do well. And he's now a school administrator, uh, you know, but I think I think we have to you have to constantly be looking at who is out there that would fit your program. And when you see a potential job opening on your staff, you've got to start reaching out right away. And then you the other thing is, is can you get that guy hired by your school? Uh, you know, because sometimes teaching doesn't line up in 2014 uh both of our assistant coaches one got into administration and one uh got a head job in the area they were my two main assistants and the school basically said well we uh we need those teaching spots for other sports so then i'm just like trying to find hardship guys and it was a miserable year um the 2015 season was was pretty miserable all around for us Uh, but i think trying to, to keep a network of guys available um that teach different subjects so that when you know something might be coming up, uh, you can do something. Right now, my, my assistants pretty much all played for me because uh, I'm getting that old. Uh, you know, a couple of them went off and played uh, college baseball at a really high level, uh, came back into the area. Uh, it's kind of the, the, the great thing about it is they become they became small school head coaches for a couple of years uh, and then now have come back and, and now they're assistants with me. So now I kind of have three head coaches in the dugout at all times, uh, all who've had to make those decisions. And I'm sure at some point those guys are going to go off and be head coaches again. So I've already got to start looking for who's going to replace them down the road too. Uh, so I think you've got a network, you've got to go talk to people and you've got to find guys who are going to fit into what you want to do. Uh, you know, as an assistant coach, you want to bring your own ideas, but ultimately you have to find a way to fit into what the overall program is, is trending towards. You know, I remember being an assistant coach and I probably agreed with about 70% of what the head coach was doing. And then once I became a head coach, if I could have went back, it would have been about 98% of what the head coach was doing. Uh, once you're actually making those decisions, you understand why the decisions are made the way they are. Well, I was just thinking, like, what's the perfect assistant coach to have? It's somebody who's been a head coach, so they kind of understand, like, everything that goes into it that you might not think about if you've never been a head coach. And then one would be a former player because yes. they've been through the program. They've got a little bit of the knowledge of it. And if you can combine those two, like, that's phenomenal. So what a nice spot to be in where you've got two guys like that. Yeah, this this will be the the best coaching staff I've had, uh, you know, just from from all of those standpoints like you just talked about. Uh, and then we found some volunteers. You know, we have some guys who volunteer for us and just want to be around um, and want to be around the kids. And and so that stuff has been really good. And and uh, you know, try to give those guys something. If you want to be a really valuable assistant, get really good at something. Uh, I think there's too many guys in baseball who try to get good at everything, and they really aren't good at anything. Uh, if you can be that's, that's where an advantage maybe where football has. You're just the O-line coach, so you better get really good at coaching O-line. Uh, in baseball, there's too many guys who think they're everyman, and they need to get really good at coaching one aspect of the game. Once you get really good at that, then you can branch out. Uh, but I think there's, you know, if you can find a role to provide to a staff, it can really help you as a coach. 
Yeah, I think so too. So I, you mentioned players coming back. I have my, for the first time a player coming back to coach for me, which I'm really excited about. And I kind of had the same realization where it's been a month or so where he's been around and I'm like, I, like I need to give this kid his own like lane because right now you can tell like he's struggling to figure out like, what is, what do I do here? Like, I, I don't know what to be good at. And so it's like, okay, you're the head infield coach. Like, that's your job. You're going to coach the infielders. You're going to get as good as you can about it. Here's a ton of resources. Like, go learn. This is your, like, this is your role here. And you mentioned, like, football being really good about that. And it's true. And I think that's something that I think all sports could kind of take from it. Because otherwise, you have a bunch of people as coaches kind of standing around who all think they kind of know everything about everything. And it makes it makes for a really weird coaching environment because now there's no there's no direction, I guess. Yes, and and there's also like no ownership. Uh, you know, when the when the next day the shortstop needs some work, extra work at practice, and that's your infield guy. He he should be going to that guy, seeking him out. It gives the infielder relationship with one of the coaches, and it allows that that coach to grow. And that and it just benefits your your program. Once that guy succeeds at infield, now he can start to spread out and do other things, uh, which is something that maybe football doesn't do a great job of. Um, a lot of times you get pigeonholed into one role forever, but. Um, I do think that's something a baseball coach should really strive to be doing. Well, and then people look at you funny because sometimes you'll see a guy who's like a D-line coach and then you you start talking to him and you're like, well, you you played quarterback your whole life. Like, this is weird. And then now you just coach D-line forever. And that's a bizarre deal. And like you mentioned earlier, like you were a hitting guy. And over time, you've become a, a good pitching guy. But it doesn't happen overnight, right? You didn't just wake up one day and, oh, I'm great at hitting. I'm great at pitching. Like, I know everything. It takes a long time. I've, I've gone through a similar thing where our, our pitching coach, who was just an awesome guy, he, he coached here long before I came. and was just amazing. It was like having another head coach, just like everything you could ever want, a pitching coach too. And when he stepped down to focus more on family, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I have spent no time learning anything about pitching and now I've got to go find a pitching coach that I trust. And I don't really know all that much about it. It's a scary spot to be. It, it is. And and sometimes I just got thrown into the fire where I had to figure things out. It's kind of how I am right now with catching. Uh, we've always had people work with our catchers and we've always had really good catchers. And now we're breaking in some, some younger catchers who are going to be good, but you know, on March 6th, they're not great. Um, you know, and so trying to, to develop those guys is something I'm, I'm working on right now. Um, you know, I think that, you have to kind of flip the ball. You talk about pitching and hitting, you know, once you, once you understand one of those subjects really well, I think it gets easier to understand the other subject because you know what hitters are thinking, you know what pitchers are thinking and vice versa. And I think that's really important. Mark, Marcus Stroman had a deal a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, on uh, Twitter, uh, Rob Friedman had it. Uh, Stroman says he hangs out with the hitters as much as he possibly can. You know, and I think in baseball, the pitchers like to hang out with the pitchers and the hitters like to hang out with the hitters. And you need to be talking to those other guys. We have a few POs, and I'm always encouraging them to go talk to our hitters and our hitters to go talk to our pitchers about what they're seeing. Uh, and you want to talk about building guys' confidence. Uh, you know, you face a guy in an interest squad who just blows you up on the mound. Uh, and then going and asking, he just says, man, your fastball looks heavy. There's no way I can square that thing up today. And that gives that pitcher a lot of confidence because he's hearing it from one of his teammates, and I think that stuff is important. It is important. I think you're totally right. And I think it plays itself out in other sports too. You talk about football. If you're an offensive coach, it would make a lot of sense for you to 
<laughs> hang out with the defense a lot and totally. and, and have, do intra squads and play against each other and and because you learn so much about about yourself and about what you coach and everything like that. Um, I kind of want to finish here because I think this is an important question, especially with COVID and everything that it's brought along with it. And I, I ask this to everybody, and the answers are always kind of all over the map, and they've all been amazing. Um, but, you know, if somebody asked you, why are high school sports important? Obviously, Scott, you've spent a huge part of your life just dedicated to high school sports and baseball in particular. Why do you find it to be so valuable? Like what's so important about high school sports? Why should we invest time in it? Why should communities care about it? I, th- I think high school sports are, are sadly about the only thing we have going that replicates any sort of real life environment for high school kids and below. Um the competition factor, the competitiveness, the failure, uh, the working, the work ethic of being on your own, uh, all of those things. The comp- I mean, the competition, we don't even do a, a class rank anymore at school uh, because we don't want kids competing for grades. Uh, you know, it's it's the about the only thing we have going anymore that replicates real life that, hey, sometimes you work your hardest and you're still not good enough. And sometimes you have to find ways to provide value by investing in other people and not being the star of the show. And I don't think that we get a lot of uh, experiences with that outside of high school sports. I mean, people sit, talk about jobs and everything else, but but you're typically not working in a job where your failures are so public, et cetera. Um, I think it's something that really allows kids, if you can make it through a successful high school sports career, and I mean, on a, in a successful program, I guess I should say, uh, yeah. I, I think you can do just about anything uh, outside of high school as well. Uh, because I think to to truly be successful um, in a, as a high school sports requires a maturity level, a work ethic that is just not required in about anything else a kid that's 16 or 17 years old has to do. Yeah, it's something authentic. I, I love that. I guess as a, as a society that competition is not not something to value, and it's just it's just a bizarre place to be. And so, man, when you say that, it I'm I'm nodding, sitting here nodding my head like, yeah, it's it really does start to feel and is starting to feel like high school sports are the last place where a teenager is really learning all the ins and outs about competing. And like you mentioned, sometimes your best isn't going to be good enough and that sucks, but we've got to learn how to deal with that too. Yeah. It's, it's, you would rather find that out as a 17 year old, you're learning those life lessons because at some point they're going to come to you, uh, you know, and, and we want to have that cocoon of a high school uh, still there for somebody who can fail on a Thursday night um, in front of in front of hundreds of fans and come back to school Friday morning and face everyone and you be there for them as the coach uh, that isn't always there for them in life. You know, when you uh, fail at your job and everyone at your job is angry at you when you're 27 years old, do you have that support system still? And I don't know that you always do. Uh, and so learning how to deal with that stuff as a high school student is, is uh, very, uh, very beneficial. Yeah, it's it's vital. Uh, that's that's an amazing. Like I said, we get amazing answers. That one's uh, that one's phenomenal. And it's funny how different different people come about that question in different ways. But man, yeah, the idea of competition is is so big. And I, I think a lot of times we're entering this, like I said, this weird part of, of life now where we're kind of shying away from it. But life is still very much a competitive experience in a lot of different ways. And being able to deal with that is is like you said, it's vital. Um, Man, uh, Scott, I've I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It makes uh, I've said this before, but anytime an hour can fly by and feel like five minutes, uh, it's a good conversation. Um, I wanted to just finish. I don't have a question. I just wanted to kind of hand the mic over to you and 
if you had parting thoughts or any advice for, for coaches or parents or anything that maybe we, we didn't get to, but maybe should have, or, or just didn't have time for, uh, just kind of hand the mic over to you and let you finish this off here. I guess my overall message to coaches uh, specifically um, is every community and program has built in advantages and disadvantages. And I, I'm seeing a lot of coaches nowadays who look at all the disadvantages of where they are um, and all the things they don't have. You know, oh, we don't have a turf indoor football field. Oh, we, uh, our weight room is not as good as so-and-so's school. Um, and, and every school gets into this competition mode of facilities and everything else. Um, but every single situation you're in also has advantages that other people don't. You have to find a way to accentuate your advantages. Uh, we're, we're not going to have some of the things that some of the other schools in our conference are going to have. Uh, but they also don't get to have their kids grow up together playing first grade baseball together and being best friends and totally invested and, and uh, you know, being able to, to be there every single day with each other growing up. Um, and I think that that's something that as coaches, we all have to do a better job of is uh, finding the advantages that your programs do have and, and build into that into your program rather than look at all the things we don't have. That's a great reminder. I just, um, just a couple of days ago, uh, at Defiance High School, I think it's in Ohio, uh, just yes. kind of popped up on my Twitter feed. And it was this, it was the, a picture of their indoor hitting facility and their turf baseball field. And just, it, it was almost, it was really difficult to not just have this flood of jealousy of like, oh man, the things, the things I could do if I was the head coach and our program had that stuff. And it's, you're, you're dead on, like it's, it's a trap to fall into. And, um, it's why focus on, you know, stuff that we can't control. We've got so much in front of us, so many advantages to every job. And it's a good reminder for me and probably for everybody listening. My, my wife brought this up a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're having a lot of schools in our conference that are turfing their baseball fields. And she said, you know, if you turfed your baseball field, would all of your kids hang out working on the field together as much? Would they get that camaraderie and culture of doing that? Or would they start taking things for granted? Uh, you know, just, just preparing your own field every day. Like, yeah, that, that is a time commitment, but it also really brings your program closer together that maybe somebody with turf doesn't get. And I think we just have to always look at the bright side of things and look for uh, reasons to be hopeful for our future and not, uh, you know, not just look at all the things we don't have. Yeah, it's a great point. We during summer ball, we spend a lot of time working on the field. We'll usually spend more so than we do during the regular season just to kind of put it to bed for the offseason. And uh you're right, man. It's a huge bonding time for people. And you learn a lot about yourself when you're using the scuffle hoe and, you know, 90 degree heat and you're just, it just sucks and you're carrying dirt and just, it just sucks, but you're hanging out as a group and you're getting better as people. Like you mentioned, better, better people, better teammates. And I guess maybe better competitors because you start trying to scuffle a little faster than the guy next to you too. In 2010, we turfed our, we, we uh, sodded our entire infield ourselves. Uh, it's like 97 degrees. It was the day before school started. It was miserable. But like our kids were still, actually, I had a kid who said, Coach, I was thinking about not going to college after high school. He said, I can't do manual labor like this every day. I'm going to have to do something else. And I thought that was a, a funny thing. Like we're, you're, you're teaching them a work ethic that they don't always get. So. Yeah, I've always said if someone wants to come and build a turf field and pay for it, and I don't have to do any of the work. Like, okay, fine, I'll take it. But yeah. in the meantime, the lessons and stuff we get from not having turf, I think, are awesome. I have really enjoyed having you on the on the show. Thanks so much for carving out some time for us. I know there's a lot people can take from this, and just just know that I really appreciate you. Thank you very much, Max. 
Oh my gosh, so many important reminders and takeaways, especially the sanctity of competition in high school sports. This is why we do what we do and why I am so thankful for coaches like Scott and for people like you. Thanks again to Netting Pros for sponsoring the episode and to you for tuning in. Once again, if you haven't joined the club as a free member yet, do it. Seriously, about 90 seconds and then you'll be part of the premier national organization of high school coaches, trainers, administrators, parents, players, and more. And you'll get the weekly newsletter in your inbox every Wednesday. You can find that link down in the show notes. This upcoming newsletter is the first in a series devoted to tryouts, cutting players, and the dreaded parent email. Don't forget to leave a rating, maybe even a review. And if you have any recommendations for people who should be guests on the show, be sure to reach out to me, even if that recommendation is you. Follow the club on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at HS Coaches Club. You can follow me on Twitter as well. That's at Mr. Max Price. And you can reach me via email, max at highschoolcoachesclub.com. You're awesome. You matter. Thanks for everything you do. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you. <laughs>